to Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1, that's where our preaching will be from this morning. Esther chapter 1, and the title, as we look at Esther chapter 1, is The King Reigns. The King Reigns. There is a picture, there is a theme that is seen throughout the Bible. It's a very simple and clear picture. The king reigns. The king reigns. It is something, I feel, in our modern culture that we struggle with. The idea of a king reigning, of a king ruling. Now, we have a king, of course, in our nation. But we've never really seen a king in action, you could say. A king who truly rules and reigns over all his subject. In our own country, we have a king. And for much of the world, that is strange, isn't it? They might think it's strange that we even have a monarchy anymore. But while we have one king, a king of this nature that we see in our text is very strange in human history. What do I mean by that? Modern kings and queens are very different to the kings and queens we see in history. Nearly all of human history has kings of great power and wealth. Modern kings of very little power. Usually their role is ceremonial. They're there to represent people. And their power can be taken away if they become unpopular enough. Very strange to history. So the modern mind, we in our modern era struggle with the idea of submitting to a great king of kings and lord of lords and that he has rule and reign over everything in our lives. Today, we can be in danger of under selling, you could say, or undermining or undervaluing how powerful a king is and how powerful the king of kings really is, the real king. We risk undervaluing the king in heaven. Our King Charles III may not have much power compared to kings of old. He may have more influence than you or I. In various different ways. But very different to the kings of old. But we do have a king with ultimate power today. One who reigns not just over the church. But also over the state. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in our text this morning we're going to be looking at a king from history. A real flesh and blood king who lived who reigned, and who's no longer with us, who's no longer reigning today. He was known in his day as the king of kings, Ahasuerus, over the great Persian empire. This is also during the time of Esther, Queen Esther. It's quite famous and quite well known among many. It was also a time of great compromise among God's people. A time when many remained in a foreign empire, rather than return home to Judah. Many remained under the king, Ahasuerus. 
But we need the real king here this morning. So we're going to look at this morning, this text, this chapter. We're going to look at under four headings. And the first heading is this. The reach of the rain. The reach of the rain. Verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass in the days of Hazoeris. This is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over a hundred and seven and twenty provinces. That in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace, empires and reigns are often known and remembered by the size, how much control. Now, if I mentioned two of the smallest countries in the world. Two of them are actually inside of the country of Italy. One's called San Marino, and the other one's called Vatican City. Many people forget that Vatican City is actually a country, an independent country, so is San Marino. But we don't remember them, do we? Don't think, wow, look at that great and mighty nation. No, it's very small. And you might drive through it and not even notice it, or walk through it and not notice it too much. But the greatness of an empire, of a reign, is often measured by its size. Here we have a reign, Ahasuerus, 127 provinces from India, or what is now modern-day Pakistan, all the way over to Ethiopia. The reach of this reign reached all the way to parts of modern Greece. All of modern Turkey. This is huge. This is a huge empire that Ahasuerus reigned over. It included all many parts of modern day Russia. Until that point, this was the biggest empire the world had ever seen. Until that point. There was bigger empires later on. Roman Empire was larger. But this was the biggest empire until that point. Very, very impressive. Very, very impressive. The most impressive empire that they're ever going to see, that they'd have ever seen on the earth. Now, we still remember, don't we, today, the days, at least from history lessons, the days of the British Empire. The days of the British Empire. The reach of that empire was very impressive. There's a saying, isn't there, that, that it led to the saying that this empire on which the sun never sets. The sun never set. The reach of the empire, the reign, was so wide and so vast. It covered many parts around the globe. So the size of the empire makes it memorable. Important. Thousands of years later, we still remember Alexander the Great. Why? Because he conquered so much. Here we have 127 provinces that serve under King Ahasuerus, as shown here in our text. Now, they must be loyal to him. They must not be seeking to undermine his rule and his reign as the king of kings over the Persian Empire. But friends, there's a far greater king than the king mentioned here. Far greater. It is a kingdom 
whose reach that this king I'm referring to has a far, far greater reach than 127 provinces. As impressive as that is. It is a kingdom that still has greater reach today. The Persian Empire is no more. It is in pages of history books, but it's no longer there. King Ahasuerus is not ruling and reigning anymore, but the king of kings, the real king of kings is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a kingdom that still has great reach of Christ, whose commander of whose army is far greater. This king I speak of, when he looks at every blade of grass, every dust particle in the universe, what does he say? Mine. Mine. Now, what's one of the first words we'll say as a child? Often it's mine. Because by nature we think, oh, that's there, that's mine, I want it. That's the way we are by nature. We want to rule and reign. We want to advance our own kingdom by nature. Children are like this. We have to be taught not to be like this. You might not remember saying mine, but I think we all did when we were a child. I'm sure our parents reminded us when we were growing up. We want to rule. We want to reign. But we must not. We do not. We must submit to the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. Because what we need to realize is it doesn't belong to us. Anything, the house we live in, we get it for a while. And we're not going to live in there forever, are we? There's going to come a day when that house we live in will be dust. We'll be no more. All the things, all the wonderful things that God has given us in this world is nothing compared to God himself. That's why God is the ultimate and most wonderful reward of all. Not everything belongs to Hazarus either. It all belongs to God. Hazarus, no doubt, thinks, I am the king. No one challenges me. I rule and reign. But did it really? Now, I want us to think about this by way of application for our own selves. Is there any part of your life that you think is off limits to the king of kings to tell you what to do? You might say, no. no." Might be the immediate reaction in your mind. Examine this for a second. Is, are we going to the word of God and applying this to our lives? None of us are perfect, of course. But we're seeking to say, the Lord reigns over every single thing in my life. My thoughts my words, my deeds, my Sabbath day, my job. Maybe even that non-Christian friendship you have with somebody. Sometimes it could be difficult if you've got non-Christian friends. But we've got to be careful that everything we do and the conversations that we have, that they glorify God. You may not always have the opportunity to share the gospel, but that the conversations you have glorify God. Everything belongs to God. Nothing's beyond the reach and the reign of God. Things may be outside of our reach, and they often are, but nothing is outside of the reach and the reign of God. We're to be loyal to him in everything. 
And that is something I think in the modern church we really struggle with. We do say that's off limits. But friends, we must not be atheists in parts of our lives. We must say, yes, let him take it all. Because he is worthy and he is wonderful. And to rule and reign and he is worthy of all the honor and all the praise. So the reach of the reign is number one. Number two now, the radiance of the reign. The radiance of the reign. So the reach of the reign is impressive. When people have something impressive, what do you do with it? What what do you do? So you've just washed your car, it's shiny, it's a bit more, grabs a bit more attention than before. You celebrate it. It's something to boast in almost. And this is what happens with Ahasuerus. He's celebrating the impressiveness of my kingdom. Look at my reign. We're going to, we're going to have a party. Verses 3 and 4 says this. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants. The power of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and fourscore days. That's a hundred and eighty days. Many days of celebration. Because no doubt he sees there's something to celebrate. He thinks that there's something wonderful to celebrate. Now there is a certain limited glory, isn't there, in the things of this world. A shine, a radiance, a splendor it grabs our attention. That if you see something glorious, you don't just walk past it. You, it grabs your attention. It, it focuses your, the, the eye and it makes you look towards that wonderful thing. If something is glorious and if you've got eyes to see and ears to hear, you will see that it is glorious. To be impressive, to grab our attention. It's not ordinary. It's not ordinary. But how impressive was his reign really? How impressive was his reign really? Were those riches there a hundred years before that? A thousand years later, where are those riches? Gone. Who owns those riches today? Maybe the silver and the gold, maybe that sticks around a bit longer, but the rest of it is dust and ashes. Solomon learned a lesson in his own life. Solomon ruled and reigned over a very impressive kingdom in his own day. That Solomon's reign in Israel was the pinnacle that all the Jews wanted to get back to. But he learned one thing during all the impressiveness of that the silver and the gold were everywhere and, and the riches were everywhere. He learned compared with eternity, the things that he had and valued most of his life were vanity of vanities. All is vanity and it led him to writing Ecclesiastes. He saw that compared to eternity, compared to eternal things, they're but a puff of smoke, literally. They're gone. They make wings and they fly away. This life, these things we celebrate, will one day be dust and ashes. We have to remember that. The things we cling to. Yes, they're wonderful. We thank God for them. Absolutely. 
There's, and there's nothing wrong with having a nice house and other things. But we don't make an idol of them, do we? We don't make it the source of our joy. Because it can be taken away. We don't even make our family, as much as we thank, be thankful to God for our family, we don't even make them our source of our joy. God is to be the source of our joy. Because we see where the real radiance comes from. The real shine and luster where riches eternal are. In verse 4 it says this, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and four score days. Unlike the celebrations here, now they go on for a long time, 180 days, and then they go on a little bit further. But what about the celebration of the radiance of heaven? What about the radiance of heaven? Will it ever diminish the celebrations? Will it ever go away? We celebrate so many things in this world that are a puff of smoke. Yes, for a period of time. But the radiance of the king, it shines and it continues to shine. It never loses its luster. And it continues forever and ever. Eternally radiant. And because it's pure in radiance and glory, it is to be celebrated forever. Is there going to come a time in a million years' time where the radiance of Christ will ever fade? In two billion years' time? Absolutely not. That shine, that radiance will never diminish or fade away. Pure in his glory. See, our king, our king of kings, the true king of kings is different to Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is arrogant. He's proud. Look at my stuff. Celebrate my things. Look at the impressiveness of my empire. Look at the things I've built up. It needs to be celebrated. But the shine of that empire fades. It diminishes away. See, God is pure radiance. You see, God is different because it's not because he possesses things that he is impressive. Yes, God possesses all things. But it is because of who he is that he's impressive. He is who he is out of the burning bush. I am whom I am. See, we, we shouldn't think that because God owns the earth and, and the universe, that's what makes him radiant and everything else. No. Before creation, before he even spoke light into existence, he was light itself. Pure radiance. Glorious. It says in 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, a wonderful text in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. Verse 5 of 1 John chapter 1. It says, speaking of the message of the gospel, then this is the message which we have heard of him and declare to you what is the message? That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There's no mixture There's no diminishing of the light of God. No darkness at all. Wonderful radiance. And also we're told in James chapter 1 verse 17 that there is no shadow of turning in him. He is unchanging and unchangeable light, radiance, and glory. 
So again, we think of the celebrations that are taking place over the Persian Empire. How long will the celebrations take place in heaven over the Lord's Empire? We struggle, don't we, in this world even to carve out part of the week. You know, the, the, we, modern life is so busy and it's eating into more and more sadly into the Sabbath day. And what is happening is we're, we're struggling even to spend more and more time with God. But when we leave this world, what will we be doing forever and ever? What will we be doing? We're going to be worshiping him. What we're doing here this morning is a taste of the radiance to come. We see but a taste of it here in this world, revealed in the word of God as we we praise our God in heaven. The heavens themselves declare the glory of God. Psalm 19 verse 1. But in heaven, we're going to see that glorious light in its fullness. And that's something to look forward to. The the, the riches of this world, when we boast of them, it's arrogance because it's nothing compared to eternal riches. The radiance shines forth from his kingdom for all eternity. Number three now, we're going to look at the rejoicing of the rain. The rejoicing of the rain. Now there are moments of joy in this world. But even Ahasuerus, with all the riches, with all the things that he has, his joy can be snatched away from him. He can rule and reign 127 provinces, but he can't even rule and reign his own temper, as we're going to see now. It says in verse 8, And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel. So the king had appointed to all the officers of the house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. There's a great celebration taking place. Now, I think it's important that we must speak a little bit about the nature of drinking. Now, I think we all know that there's a, a sinful attitude that our modern culture has toward drinking alcohol. We drink too much. And there's too much of a, a glorification of getting drunk. And that is sad and it's sinful. Now, while our culture glorifies drunkenness, the Bible also never condemns moderate use of wine or alcohol. Drinking in moderation. But why is that important? There's lots of pictures actually in the Bible that talk about how wine gives joy to the heart and uses that as a picture. Now, the festival here in verse 8, there's no forcing of them to drink too much. They may do so, and that would be wrong, but there was no forcing of them to drink too much. It said in verse 8, none did compel. None did compel. Compelled. There wasn't generally in these heathen festivals, there would be pressure, drink more and more. Actually, even in modern society, that happens a lot. Um, the pressure put on people to drink more and more. But this festival, was, there wasn't forced drunkenness, but it was all about enjoyment, delicacies. Actually, in the Bible, Too much wine drunkenness is used as a picture of the wrath of God. It says in Revelation 14 verse 10, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out with a mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of 
the lamb. Now, later, unfortunately, the king does get drunk. His joy fades. His joy fades in the midst of this celebration. This mighty king, as powerful as he is, is not all powerful. And we're going to see this here in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehemon, Biztai, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abatha, and others as well. And in verse 11, it says, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come to the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, he was very angry, and his anger burned in him. He's very much a man given to his passions. His passions. Now, we may look at this and wonder, was Vashti right to refuse? Sometimes this is discussed here at this point. I do not think we have enough information to condemn Vashti or even to celebrate her in this text. She could have been right to refuse. We don't know all the details. There are times, if, so, if you're commanded, even by somebody in authority, to do something that is inherently sinful, we can't do it. But if you're not sinning in submitting, we should do it. But I do not think that that is the point the word wishes to show here. The point is, Ahasuerus, as powerful as he thought he was, as impressive as he thought he was, uh, he was vain and arrogant, clearly. Foolish. A slave to his passions, in verse 12. He is ruled by these passions. He is ruled by his seeking for joy. He's, he's angry. You could say he's ruled by his emotions, almost. He cannot reign his own heart. But the king of kings is different, isn't he? This king is ruled and reigned by his passions. Our God is not. What do I mean by that? Our God, our confession of faith tells us, is without passions. He's without passions. He does not suffer. He's not ruled by his affections. What I mean by that is he's not one minute happy, one minute angry. He's pure light, and in him is no darkness at all. He is pure in everything. He's pure wisdom. He's most holy, most righteous. He is not ruled by his affections. Mere creatures don't move him from one point of enjoyment to another point of enjoyment. He doesn't change because he's perfect. And that is wonderful because he is who he is. And put it another way, our God does not suffer. Our God in heaven does not suffer. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ suffered on the cross because he was also true man. But he didn't in his divine nature. Ruling and reigning over all, not ruled by any. This is the king of kings. He's not, he's not reigned by his passions. We will be reigned by our passions at times. Our, we will be affected by things. But our passions, may they be led toward good things, godly things. You see, 
Here, Ahasuerus wants to show off his, his wife, his queen. Look how pretty she is. Look, everybody. Look at the beautiful wife I have. Of course, it is arrogance and everything else. And his joy is snatched away from him. He's not allowed to celebrate in the way he wishes to do so. He's actually led to the point where he's embarrassed by his own wife. He's not all ruling and all reigning. We need to look to the pure source of joy. God. Unchanging and unceasing joy. Because the rejoicing of the reign of the king of kings never ends. True joy. Even in this world, when we're going through suffering, when we, when we go through trials and difficulties, when you're, you're, you're wondering, oh Lord, when will this end? Whatever you're going through, maybe it's health problems, maybe it's struggle, maybe it's disagreement, maybe it's whatever it is. We ask this question, and this struggle, whatever you're going through, when will it end? But there's also a peace that we can have at the same time. There can be a joy in the midst of the sufferings. Sometimes you'll actually find in the, in the lowest points of your Christian walk are also the greatest points of joy in your prayer life because you're closer to the one who is the purest source of joy. The source of joy himself. God Almighty. Our final point this morning is the requirement of the rain. So we've looked at the reach of the rain, the radiance or the glory of the rain, the rejoicing of the rain, and finally the requirement of the rain. Verse 14 shows that there's something with the king's face. Verse 14, it says this, and next unto him was Karshana, and then some of these people here mentioned here, which saw the king's face, which sat the first in the kingdom. They, they saw the king's face. They saw the expression that he had. He was embarrassed. Hazarus is embarrassed by what has happened. I am all powerful. I'm going to celebrate the reign of my kingdom. I'm going to show it all off. I can't even. I'm not even all powerful over my marriage. I'm not even all powerful over my household. What is at stake? It's the reputation of the king. They're all going to think, oh, he's being undermined by his wife. It says in verse 15, What shall we do unto Queen Vashti according to the law, because she hath not performed the commandment of the king, Ahasuerus, by the chamberlains? Verse 16, and Memukin answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only. But also to all the princes, to all the people that are in the provinces of, of the king, Ahasuerus. This is so damaging to the king. It's not saying that the king was acting wisely. This is not saying that the king was a godly king. He was not. He was not a godly king. He's very sinful and arrogant to have to ask Vashti to do what she did. But, it, but it's still very damaging to the king. The, the reputation of the king is at stake. He cannot even reign his own house. How can he rule the kingdom? That would be spread everywhere. It would undermine him. They knew this. They knew that it would undermine him. Verse 17. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad or over a wide area. 
unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes, when it shall be reported the king Hazarus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought before him, but she came not. They saw the structure of society, and they, they, risk, they were afraid of the structure of society being pulled apart by what they saw as defiance against all the kingdom. Again, we're not saying here the king Ahasuerus is, was right in all of his actions, or even that Vashti was wrong in all of her actions, but the way they saw it is defiance against all the king. It's a bit like, you know, you have a jumper, and you pull the thread on that jumper, and eventually it all unravels. They were afraid that the entire empire would unravel. The family would unravel, and the kingdom would unravel. This was what they worried about. This is not, again, not to support or condemn what, Vash, or what Hazarus did, or even what Vashti did. Largely, this man was rash, arrogant. The family structure. They, they did understand something though, didn't they? Their, their judgment may be skewed, but they, had a, they, knew, they knew that the family structure was so important to society. Oh, how we need to rediscover that again. The family, family worship, all these things that are, are so forgotten. The, the church will never rise above a certain level or it will, it will never grow without family worship. Without strong families. Without instruction of the young and the whole. I'm not a, Sabbath school is a wonderful thing. But it can't take the place of the instruction of the young and the whole. The Lord sometimes overrules. And sometimes he will greatly bless in spite of all sorts of things. But the home is so important. And even these pagans. They saw the importance of the home to the entire empire. The importance of the home as well dear friends. To the church. We need to pray much about marriages. Healthy marriages where husbands won't be dragging their wives here and there and exacerbating them or anything like that. But also that wives would lovingly submit to their husbands. That there's a mutual love one toward another. That the, the family structures. These pagans here, they understood the need of a structure and rules in this empire or it would all fall apart. Now Vashti rejects the king's command. What does this king do for rejecting the king's command? He rejects her. He rejects her. And if this wicked king requires obedience, what about the king of kings and the lord of lords? You see, the rule and reign of Ahasuerus is not going to be always righteous. It's not. But the reign of the e-king of kings and lord of lords is always going to be righteous in everything he says and does. Why would he not seek for perfect obedience from his subjects? Why wouldn't he? Even the wicked kings seek for absolute obedience to them or else they know what will happen. Now, you're probably thinking this morning, I hope you are, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner, how can I... How can I be acceptable before God if, if what is accepted is perfect keeping of the law of God in order to come into his presence? How can any of us come? That's a good first question to ask. But friends, if you come in the righteousness of Christ, you will be viewed as righteous. Not trusting in your own righteousness, for they are but filthy rags before the Lord. 
But if you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the king looks at his bride and finds her well-pleasing and will never set her away. Vashti is no longer pleasing before Ahasuerus because she has rejected the rule and reign of the king. But friends, in Christ and only in Christ, the king of kings who came, who obeyed the law so that when he looks at you, dear believer, he sees a law keeper. He sees somebody who has lived the perfect life. No, we haven't. None of us have. This is why we can't trust in our own righteousness. This is why we can't trust our own works. Our own works will send us to hell if we trust in them. We will be displeasing before the king. He will set us out. It says here, uh, verse 19, if it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it be not altered. That Vashti come no more before the king Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. And we know later on who, who replaced her. Esther, who is more pleasing. More pleasing before the king. Friends, how are you going to be pleasing before our king? It can't be our works. It can't be. It can't possibly be. If we think that it is, we will be like Vashti. Set aside. Set aside, no longer pleasing before God. Because the standard of the king is perfect, righteous, and pure. And that standard, it's a wonderful standard. This, this new law in Persia was published, look at the end of verse 22. Verse 22, and he sent letters unto all the king's provinces, and to every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the language of every people. This law, this new law is published to all the land, all languages, all the people, because it has authority. What about the law of God in our homes? What about the law of God? Wherever we have influence, let it be published, shared, distributed, applied to our lives. The wonderful thing is, dear friends, God provides all that is needed to rescue his people. If you read through the book of Esther, what's wonderful is Vashti is set aside, something they could probably have never predicted before that happened. And who is brought in? Esther. And Esther is used by God to deliver his people later on in the book. The righteousness that we need to approach our king is all provided by God. Everything needed to approach the king is provided by God. Even the person who shared the gospel with you, it's all provided by God. The upbringing you have, it's all provided by God. All the experiences you have, it's all provided by the wonderful hand of God. Is he not worthy of our praise? As we approach him, as part of his bride, pleasing before him, is he not worthy of our praise? Is he not worthy of our ad- adoration? Is he not worthy to be published, his law published 
everywhere to anyone who will hear it. Because unlike the law of the Medes and the Persians, it's not always going to be righteous. But God's law, the King of Kings, his law is always righteous, always good. Do you know him here this morning? Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you love his law? Do you love to share it? And if you love to share it, rejoice with us here this morning. Amen.